You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Okay, let's get into our topic for the day, and it's not going to be a long show. It's going to be uh, rather uh, brief here, but I, I, it, albeit it's going to be a very important point I, I want to make today. And that is that I believe that Matthew twenty four thirty one. there's a reference of, of a, the gathering of the elect, okay? This gathering of the elect. Well, Matthew twenty four thirty one. let me read that. It reads, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So we have, we have this, um, well, first of all, there, there, there's several reasons why the expression gather his elect refers to the rapture. I believe, in fact, uh, in my book, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, uh, I, I mentioned four of these reasons. There are other reasons, and uh, today I'm going to give you one of these other reasons that actually that in my book I implicitly kind of made that argument, but not really explicitly, but I'm going to make it explicitly here. I'm not, I'm not going to turn this into a series all in one, you know, like, you know, part one, part two, part three, I you know, every week. No, I'm, I mean, in one sense, it's going to be kind of a series, but I'm not going to label it as a series. Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure I'm going to treat all re- all the reasons on you know in a strict sequential every week here for six weeks. I'm not I'm not sure. I just um, maybe I will, maybe I won't. We'll, we'll see. But in this particular show, I am going to give one important reason, at least one reason why Matthew twenty four thirty one refers to the rapture. Pre tribulationism teaches that the gathering, right, that reference the gathering of the elect event in Matthew twenty four thirty one, they believe it doesn't refer to the rapture. Pre-trib teachers, uh, they interpret this as this gathering refers to the eschatological regathering of Jews for salvation when Jesus returns. Okay? And, you know, from a pre-reth perspective, we agree with pre-tribs. We're, we're pre-millennial. Um, we believe, we both, pre-tribs, pre-rathers believe in the future salvation of Israel. This is true. We just don't believe that Matthew twenty four thirty one describes this point in time um, when Jesus will regather the Jews. We believe it will eventually Jesus will regather uh, this remnant of Jews for salvation at a later point in time. We don't believe that uh, verse 31 describes that. Instead, what's being described in verse 31 is a rapture event. And... <clears throat> This question of whether or not the gathering of his elect event refers to the rapture is it's quite a big watershed question. You have to understand, uh, uh, you know, it's important because if it if it does refer to the rapture, which the pre-wrath position teaches, then the church will face the Antichrist Great Tribulation since the gathering of the elect in verse 31 happens after the great tribulation described in verses, you know, 9 through 28. Okay, right? Because verse 29 says, quote, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. And this is why pre-tribulationism cannot have 
this referred to the rapture because, right, they believe it's pre-trib, i.e., the rapture, they believe the rapture will happen before the Antichrist Great Tribulation. Right? They can't have any events, prophesied events that have to happen before the rapture. Someone may ask, well, you know, why does verse 31, you know, verse 31 is not very descriptive. So uh, how do you, since it's not very descriptive, you know, for such a climatic event as a rapture, um, you know, how do you know that's you know, referring to the rapture? Well, first of all, we have to understand something uh, in linguistics. Linguistics, we have in a very important distinction. Under the rubric of linguistics, we have what's called you know, um, lexical semantics. Distinguished between what's called sense and reference. Sense is, well, there are two types of different meanings. So whenever we talk about meanings, sometimes we have to really explain what do we mean by meaning, <laughs> right? Um, so we have sense and reference. I'll, I'll give you a perfect e- example, right? So like Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 refers to this restrainer. Well, the sense of that is, okay, there's a restrainer. We all understand there's this, this, this figure is going to restrain or is restraining. That we can, everyone can agree on, okay? Uh, but the text does not describe the reference or the referent. And the referent, that is, what is it pointing to? You know, um, who is the restrainer? That's the reference, okay? Well, in Matthew 24, uh, verse 31, we have, we have a, uh, we have the sense, but we don't have a, an explicit, um, an explicit, we have an implicit, as I'll explain in a moment, uh, but we don't have an explicit reference, okay? The sense uh, is of the gathering of the elect is, well, okay, there's going to be an elect remnant of God's people. Everyone can agree with that. That's going to be gathered in some sense, okay? Now, what what reference is it pointing to? Uh, more, that is the specificity. What is the object of that uh, that uh, of the sense, right? So you know, pretrobes will say it's the Jewish remnant, uh, and I'm arguing that, and Prewrath argues that the reference here is the rapture. Okay, so we have the sense, the gathering of the elect. Now the the hard work comes, and that is, you know, the biblical interpretation, right? I mean. So, so many of exegetical problems and interpretive texts that are debated, it's, it's um, not all the time, but uh, so many times it, it has to do with identifying the reference, not the sense. The sense is easy, right? For not all the time, but many times it's, it's easy to, to figure out the, the basic sense of something here. So, <clears throat> um. So what we have to do is okay. We don't have we don't have an explicit. We don't have Jesus saying okay. The elect of God are the you know um, you know it's the God's people, the resurrection, uh, and 
and being called up to heaven from the earth and very explicit narrative, right? Like Paul does and, and gives us in First Thessalonians chapter 4. We don't have a First Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, description in verse 31. So what we have to do then is we have to look at the context. We have to look at contextual clues around this text, right? And then we another uh, interpretive principle is we need to compare uh, verse 31 and this contextual uh, text, contextual text, and compare it with other texts in the Bible that uh, have a similar teaching. Very basic interpretive tool, right? So, so Jesus, yes, Jesus gives us a, a terse description of the gathering, right? Matthew, uh, verse 31, very terse. He just says, well, the, you know, gathering of the elect, angels gather elect, right? While Paul, the apostle Paul in First Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, provides much more detail of what's going to happen at the beginning of the second coming. Now, this is very important. You know, pre-tribs always say, they say, well, Matthew 24, 31 doesn't describe the rapture because Jesus does not give us any explicit uh, description of the rapture. But there's a problem with that. And they're not understanding the, the purpose of the discourse. Okay, that's, that's, here's another interpretive principle that's so often uh, forgotten. We, 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 sometimes we focus on the trees so much that we, we miss the forest. And what is the forest? Well, one of the questions of the forest is, why is, it, why is there a discourse in the first place? Okay, let me, let me repeat that. Why is a, there a discourse in the first place? You have to ask yourself, what's the situational context? In linguistics, we call it situational context, right? Uh, because basically you have, I'm just going to digress for a moment here, you have different types of context, right? You have what's called, the okay, you have what, what produces what produces a text, a passage in the first place? Well, it's, it's the situation. There's always a situation, and that's called the situational context, okay? Uh, and then you have actually a much larger, more background context, and that's called a cultural context, Okay, that's the historical cultural context. That's the large milieu, right? And then within that, uh, and w- what is that, right? Well, that's the the Jewish context, right? This is coming, you know, out of a Jewish milieu, first uh, century Jewish um, context, larger context, but the smaller context. Uh, the more narrow context is called the situation context. What actually, what event produced it? Well, we know, um, and, and, and sometimes if some texts are very difficult. We don't know exactly uh, sometimes how a, a, a text produced, but uh, was produced. But here we obviously do in verse three, right? Uh, uh, even before the chapter, you know, Jesus has a conflict with the Jewish leaders, and then the disciples, you know, they they ask Jesus the pivotal questions of, you know, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age, right? And that prompts Jesus to give this discourse. Okay, that's the situational context. Well, there's the other. There's even a more. Um, uh, there's another context, and that's what we call the co-text. 
I know this is probably a new term for many of you, but in linguistics, it's very, it's very important. Uh, a lot of people talk about the term context and they're very vague about it. Well, there's, there's, there's the, the textual, the textual context is again, in linguistics, it's called cotext and cotext is that text that is surrounding, i.e. co, right? Accompanying like verse 31. So what's the cotext of the text surrounding verse 31? And verse 31 is actually technically also including the cotext. So what's all these contextual or cotextual clues and situational context? And okay, so we understand that. <laughs> I want to digress. And sometimes I think it's important. You know, I don't want this show to simply be just, you know, Bible prophecy. I mean, obviously that's the focus, but uh, if I can teach some linguistic and, you know, sound biblical inter- interpretations or, or interpretive principles um, um, to many of you, then then I think that's a good thing. And, you know, introduce you to certain terms of that, that, that scholars use uh, in, in how they describe their interpretational process and procedures and methodology, okay? So, that being said... Um, so we get back to my question here, and that is, my question is, uh, <clears throat> is, okay, so Jesus does not give us the reference explicitly in verse 31. So we have to look at the surrounding, now most people say context, but technically we'll, we'll call it co-text, that is the surrounding text. Is there anything around verse 31 that clues us into you know, what Jesus is referring to, okay? All right, well, uh, Jesus, uh, well, let me just make one other point here, because remember, here, and Jesus gives us a terse description, while Paul, again, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, gives us much more detail, right? So, it should not surprise us that Jesus gives very little description of the nature of this gathering. Why? Again, people, you know, here's a, it, this is a very important question. This is this is you know when you when you interpret text, you want to ask a lot of these questions. Why is Jesus not giving us more description? Well, we have to go back to what what is the uh, the purpose of the discourse? Well, the purpose is that again the context of is. The uh, the or the situational context is that the disciples' main question back in verse three was asking what the sign of the coming and the end of the age was. So that prompts Jesus to give us this discourse, and so Jesus answered the disciples' question by explaining that certain conditions and events must precede his return including, you know, the actual sign of his return being his glory, right? For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be, verse 27. So, here's my point. It's important to keep in mind that the disciples are asking what will announce his return, not what will happen at his return, and that's why Jesus doesn't give us much description of what will happen at his return, because that's not what the disciples are asking. Now, of course, Jesus could have, 
describe what will happen at his return. And he actually does go in a little bit, you know, about the judgment and he gives these, uh, you know, the analogies of Noah, right? And Lot, um, the thief, you know, and the judgment afterwards. But he doesn't give us a lot of description. The focus, the focus is on what is going to happen before his return. So we should not expect or even require Jesus to go into any detail about the gathering event. Now, as for Paul, that's different because in Paul in First Thessalonians chapter four, verses thirteen to fifteen, it's a different situational, contextual question. And what was the situation? What was the uh, the situational context in that letter? Right? What produced Paul to write that? Right? Uh, to, to 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 write his epistle. Christians were dying in the Thessalonica church, and there was confusion, right, among those who were alive about whether they were going to see their loved ones again. That was the situational context that produced the discourse, the text of Paul's first epistle. So. <clears throat> So for Paul, it's a different contextual question because he is addressing what will happen at Jesus' return. That is, you know, not what's going to happen before, but what's going to happen at Jesus' return. That is the event of the reunion of the dead in Christ with the alive in Christ at Jesus' return. So that's why he focuses, he has such a lot of description in his text. So, Paul is not addressing the sign of Jesus' return, as Jesus did in Matthew 24. He is addressing an event that will happen at his return. Therefore, this is the reason why Paul, again, gives us this developed picture of the rapture event, while Jesus doesn't go into uh, much detail about it. Okay, so now the question remains... If there is so little description of the gathering in verse 31, Matthew 24, verse 31, then how can we know it describes the rapture? Well, this question, I mean, in one sense, this question can also be turned around on the pre-tribulationist in that, well, if there's so little description of the gathering in verse 31, then how do we know it describes the Jewish gathering, <laughs> right? So it's not, you know, it kind of, the question cuts both ways. But in in um, uh, in this episode, as I mentioned, I want to give at least you know uh, one good reason. In subsequent shows, I'm going to give other reasons. But in this show, I want to give one uh, one reason, at least one reason, why we can know that this refers to the concept of the rapture, or at least a rapture event here. Even though Jesus gives little description in verse 31, he does, though, give a description. And this description that he does furnish is is actually quite informing. Uh, It's not a lot, but it is informing. There is a cause and effect action that should not be missed. Uh, If we... You know, if we only focus on verse 31, we're going to miss the causal action in, in verse 30. 
let me read uh, Matthew 24, 30 and 31 together. <clears throat> so verse 30, uh, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, that is the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. So notice the focus in verse 30. This is very important, is that Jesus, the Son of Man, is in the sky. He's on the clouds of heaven. And the Greek is epiton nephilon to urano. In other words, he is not on the earth. He is not on the earth. He's in the sky. I mean, it's almost so obvious that this, I mean, this, this cause and effect action, it can be missed. I mean, this is, I mean, it seems just so self-evident, but this, this obvious point is meaningful in light of the gathering of the elect. You know, we're told then that after this, that, you know, so we have the depiction of Jesus in the clouds, he's in the sky, and then it says that he sends his angels, his his angels, and they will gather his elect. And of course, we presume that the angels are in the sky with Christ, but he's gathering his elect from one end of the earth, that is the sky, to the other. And there's a, a parallel parallel account in Mark 13, 27 that notes from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Now, you know, this may suggest a directional destination of the rapture, you know, since the rapture will happen from the earth to the heaven. Um, I don't know if we can read that much into it, but nevertheless, the, the point here is that the focus is on the sky. That's the point, the sky. <laughs> uh, there's a, so there's a cause and effect action. And the cause and effect action shows, it depicts that, okay, when Jesus arrives in the clouds, in the sky, he will command his angels to gather his elect. So, you know, I, I think the most, natural, the, the most natural purpose of gathering the elect is to gather them to Jesus. That's the whole point. If you're going to gather them, Jesus is in the sky. The, the, the angels are going to gather the elect while they're going to gather them to Jesus. And who is in the sky? He's on the clouds. So there's nothing to suggest in this text that while the elect are gathered to a location on earth, I mean, the focus is in, again, it's in the sky where the gathering takes place, not on earth. And I think if Jesus intended intended something else, um, he certainly does not tell us. The point here is that, you know, what other action you know, happens like that in the sky. I mean, the gathering of the elect doesn't happen, or the, the I'm sorry, the, the gathering of uh, of the Jewish remnant uh, doesn't happen as such. I mean, that's going to be on earth. So, I mean, this can be nothing but uh, the rapture. And let's not, let's not forget uh, what the significance of all of this means for us as Christians. It means that the church is going to encounter the Antichrist great tribulation before the rapture. The church will suffer an unprecedented persecution before Jesus returns for his people. And then after that, the the, the, the future resurrection rapture, the uh, 
the ensuing event will be the day of the Lord's wrath and will be executed upon the wicked. And if you want to learn more about, uh, and I, I know we get, I always, sometimes I forget, we get uh, new listeners every week. So uh, if any of you are new and you have not read any primary literature on pre-wrath, uh, I would, I'm a little biased here, so I would suggest you, you start with my book, uh, uh, for a full-orbed teaching on pre-wrath eschatology. And that is Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Return of Christ. And you can go to Amazon, uh, or you can just order it through uh, my website, alankirshner.com. 